My name is Michael Guyatt, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the Rough Hour is Vance Harwood. Vance, introduce yourself to the audience and to me. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? And what are you doing currently? Okay. Uh, thanks, Michael. And thanks for having me on. Uh, in terms of background, my, from an educational standpoint, I have a bachelor's in electrical engineering from the University of Colorado in Boulder. Uh, for most of my work career, I was working for Hewlett Packard and various spinoffs from Hewlett Packard. But I became interested in the stock market in the late 70s and started trading options in the eight, early 80s. I've been monitoring the market and investing for a long time. But uh, I really started paying close attention when I noticed the VIX. And the thing that interested me about the VIX is that it represented, you know, it was a measure of volatility. And volatility was one of, you know, the very few things I saw that was really inversely correlated with downturns. So from a diversification standpoint, I, w- I was looking for something that uh, could be used to divert, to shedge a equity position. So became interested in the VIX. And as you know, some of you know, it's a, it's a very deep and com- complex thing. So that uh, from my engineering uh, standpoint, that's been uh, a very interesting to learn more about it. And, and I'm still learning more about the VIX as time goes on. In 2012, I left high tech and started a blog and started uh, consulting and uh, spending more of my time on uh, investment. Uh, subject. So that's uh, what I've been doing the last uh, 12 years. I'm glad you mentioned the point about uh, your engineering background as being a, a bit of a, a catalyst for you to kind of get interested in uh, the VIX and volatility in general. What is it about engineering that makes that side of the investment world really stand out to you? Is it just in terms of the, the cause and effect of the way that volatility works? I think it's honestly, I think it's the math because the math is it's it's not calculus, but it's close. Well, there's actually calculus in it. So I think the traction for me was that, you know, unlike a stock where there's no heavy math associated with it, there there is certainly mathematical concepts under there, and certainly the options get involved too, which certainly can, are pretty math heavy sort of sub- subject. So I think you know that was certainly an angle. I think the other aspect is my core personality is I'm driven to understand how things work. So I think the the non-obvious aspects of VIX were, are, are still intriguing. And the volatility surface, for example, are intriguing and very interesting. For those that are, are studying the VIX, I think the, the issue is that, as I recall, the VIX index, the inception was 1989, I think it was. 83, I think, with their first pass. And then they that never got traction. So I, I believe it was 2003 VIX part past two, which was uh, successful from the CBOE standpoint. Right. And there was the, I think the VXO was another index that was trying to do another volatility gauge as well prior to that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The first pass used near the money options on the SPX 100. And I think as a volatility measure, it's fine. But the problem is it's, I think the market makers looked at that, the CBOE clearly wanted to do futures and options on those futures. But I think the market makers, when they looked at the original version of the VIX, which is now called the VXO, they they couldn't see a way to reliably hedge it. So they opted out and the CBOE was forced to do a redo to get something that, that they would accept. So you mentioned that point about that inverse behavior. And there's a lot of interesting behavioral studies around why 
volatility is connected to fear and then speed with which markets move. But talk about some of the observations you've seen or made when it comes to volatile up markets. Because yes, the VIX does correlate typically, obviously inversely to falling markets, but you can have rising markets that are also volatile. So you're speaking of when uh, equities are on a strong upswing, that that kind of a, a situation? Right. And typically, I've, I've done studies on this, when you're at a major inflection point at, let's say, a blow off phase of like a bubble type of market mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. That tends to be very volatile, right? The markets are most volatile at the top and the bottom, right? But the VIX response is different. Right. I think the my observation on that is when you have a strong uh, upswing, if you really look at the data at the top, you get an asymmetry where the up moves start becoming muted, but you kind of have head fakes where you'll have a downturn for a couple percent. So. The VIX in a case like that oftentimes will get quite low when you're on a, And I think that frustrates people because they're seeing some realized volatility, but the VIX is not relating to that. And I think the reason for that is that generally the market is in greed mode. So people are not motivated to pay a premium for protection in terms of puts or SPX puts or very other devices like that. And that's what drives the VIX. So I, I think... The VIX is model is mimicking the behavior of the the people that are really taking action for protection rather than the the realized volatility aspects of it. So initially, when I had set up the the name of the space, I I called it saving the VIX, and I use that term purposely. I know you you kind of jokingly said not my title, right? You were a little hesitant on, but and partially it's meant to be a little bit dramatic. But there there's something I'm trying to hit on when I say that, which is you do hear that narrative that in quotes the VIX is broken, which mathematically I don't even know what that means. But I can see where the sentiment comes from in the sense that I think, and we can have a debate about this. I think there's an argument to be made that as the S and P has had more and more concentration risk, right, in terms of the major market cap, large cap stocks mm-hmm. driving performance, right, that concentration among the top five stocks. Mm-hmm that keeps on getting there, then the VIX becomes less a of an indicator of volatility for, in quotes, the market. If anything, it may have more idiosyncratic risk because it's a large con- contribution of the volatility at the top five names, right? So how do you think about that dynamic? Obviously, it's doing what it's supposed to do in terms of the S&P. The makeup of the S&P is changing in a much more company-specific type of way. Yeah, I definitely see the VIX is broken things that, that happen every couple of months. I wrote a pretty long blog post on my blog about that, going through some of the issues there. I think uh, fundamentally people, the, the VIX was designed as a commercial product. So I, the original VXO was actually a better model of, you know, at the money volatility, which is kind of the most important thing. But to give the VIX to be something the market makers would address, the CBOE came up with a, it's is technically it's a variance swap and they price it in volatility points. And one of the side effects of that approach, well, A, the market makers liked it and could hedge it. But the other thing is that it's quite sensitive to out of the money puts, for example. So you can have activity in the volatility surface that's really not obvious to most people, depending on hedging and those sorts of things. So you know, its genesis is as a commercial product that CBOE can make money on. And they made some, I think you could call it compromises, that it's not going to 
capitalize track the market that people would like that would think it would you know they're more inclined to look at uh, at the money and the realized volatility back to your point about the concentration I, I haven't looked at the data but my general sense is the S&P 500 has, has always been had this concentration this is inherent with a cap weighted index the way the S&P is and I view it as a, you know, not as a passive index, but more as a very a time-tested momentum strategy. And I think this comes into the whole stock picking thing. It's just historically, people can spend a lot of time doing stock picking, but the S&P 500 historically beats almost all of them over any long period of time. And I think that comes back to the randomness of the market, that it's very difficult to pick the winners. And so rather than trying to pick the winners, you, you hold the whole basket and the, and you participate in the unicorns, as you will, that, that, that end up dominating. So I don't know if you've looked at statistics from say 10 years ago. Have you looked at that in terms of, you know, the top 10 weighting versus the other, the other stocks? Yeah. So, so actually I had to put a post out about this. I think, I don't know, sometime mid late last year, but if you were to look at. Not on the S&P, but if you look at the NASDAQ, uh, the Qs, as an example, the top, as I recall, the top 10 names 10 years ago were roughly 40% of the Qs. And then last year, they became 50%. Isn't it? Creeping up, right? So, so I do think that there's a general movement right towards that. I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, that's the whole nature of market cap. But I, I question whether the idea that it's, it's more of a discussion around the S&P itself, if the S&P is a true proxy of, in quotes, the market now, just given the disparity. Well, and I, I think you'd have to say no, because it is dominated by, you know, not only high cap stocks, but also primarily, you know, high tech. So I, I think you can say that is a higher risk factor. You're not getting the sort of, you're not getting a diversified approach. You're really getting a, a momentum strategy. Uh, is, is is my take on it. You had mentioned the term randomness of the market, which is interesting because to some volatility is random, although clustering is pretty consistent when it takes place. But there's the other dynamic when it comes to volatility, which is that volatility is volatile, right? Sort of the second derivative. Right. So talk about that, because then you also do have these indices or signals like the VIX, right? Volatility of the VIX index, which are intriguing. I don't know if you can actually glee any information from that, but any, any kind of observations or thoughts on on that vol vol idea? Well, the, my general impression with the VVIX is that it's, it's not much of a, it's not a predictor. I, I know people have tried, but I think there are other metrics, for example, kind of VIX over VIX3M that give you indication on term structure or more reliable. As far as the vol of vol, um, I view that primarily as symptomatic of when you're, when you're in a tier mode in the market. And yeah, you know, one of the things I think that's just really intriguing is just the massive up moves that you see when you're in a big downturn. downturn. I think in uh, 2008 or early 2009, there was like a plus 8% base. And so the volatility in general is high. And I think the uncertainty is very high. So that's my impression of why. Yeah, we get this clustering where, well, and I, I think there's time, you know, what I would call time constants involved too. The market's in a mode. If you're in a big town downturn, the market is volatile, that the market tends to stay in that mode for a while. So that's the clustering that you observe. And because it is high volatility, you know, I guess I would maybe argue with you a little bit that it's the vol of vol is all that high at that point because 
And you don't see the ball going from, you know, VIX of a realize of 40 to 20 in two days. You know, that doesn't happen. What you do see is really major market moves. And I think you also see in terms of the VVIX, you see people that are wanting protection. So they're paying more for VIX calls or puts and are, are selling puts. So that's going to drive the VVIX index because it's driven off the premium of those VIX calls. So, so I think if you looked at the actual you know, volatility in the sense of it going from 40 to 20, that's not happening. That makes a lot of sense to me. Now, the other narrative, aside from the VIX is broken, that you often hear is that the Federal Reserve is selling VIX futures. You often hear things like that, meaning that there's a vol suppression, right, that happens because of VIX futures products. Have you ever looked into that? I've always been skeptical of that idea, although we'll get into zero DTE. There is, I think, an argument to be made that we're at a point now in the evolution of financial markets where derivatives are actually driving the underlying, not the other way around. Well, regarding this first question, I'm not aware of the Fed acting actively in the VIX futures. You know, I think people want to, they think that might happen. I think one of the things that people don't recognize is that the speed of a move is going to make a big deal. So you could have two different regimes where you have 20% declines in the market. And we've actually seen this with the COVID crash versus the downturn in 2022, where you go down 20%, but the rate at which that happened is really important to the law complex. If this happens fast and there's a ton of uncertainty like there was with COVID, then you the, the VIX goes way up. It, it went over 80 and the futures respond accordingly. When you have a grinding decline, the losses on the equity side are, are just as bad as you're going down 20%, but the uncertainty factor is lower. You're like, all right, we're in the economic contraction. The Fed is cranking up interest rates. That's going to depress business. There might be a bit there. And the futures are much more sensitive to the state of the market now as opposed to, you know, that kind of estimation of what's going to happen three months from now. I think there's an argument made, that, though, that you don't necessarily have to use the VIX as the tool through which you could alter market dynamics, the underlying, because it's used, and I still think, it, from what I've seen, it still seems to be used by a lot of macro players, hedge funds, as a, mm-hmm. as a reason to degross, right, to lower their leverage beyond certain VIX levels. That creates maybe a, a bit of a self-fulfilling dynamic where it actually does impact the underlying. I'm skeptical, and I think part of it is the overall VIX futures market is relatively small. The open interest is, I haven't looked recently, but I think it's less than $10 billion. So to say that's the scale that's driving the you know $10 trillion dog, to me, is a stretch. No, no, well, okay, well, sorry, sorry just, just back up. What, what I'm suggesting is that not using the futures themselves, but using if... If the VIX index is seen at, at, as an indicator of, of uh, how much leverage to take on by hedge funds, which I know there are a number of hedge funds that, you know, above a VIX level of 2022, whatever it would be, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They, they lower their gross leverage on their portfolios. The, the, there was an interesting uh, uh, paper in, in August of 07 uh, called What Happened to the Quants in August of 07, 2007. Mm-hmm. You had these like multi-standard deviation shocks and spreads. by and what happened is as they were going through the shots and the VIX was moving, they were deep grossing, which actually had all kinds of interesting implications on future, uh, on the, the coming days, right, of that. So uh, what, what I'm suggesting is that as a signal 
could be impacting markets, even if it's not the VIX futures themselves, because of the actions of players looking at different VIX levels? I think the answer to that, I, just, I agree, is yes. I, as people get nervous, they're going to look at ways to hedge their position. And the VIX futures are a very attractive way to hedge the inequity position, because if you really do have a big vol shock, they are, they are going to move very dynam- dynamically. I mentioned earlier, I believe that they're based on variance and variance is volatility squared. So if you have a big volatility move, they're, they are really going to, to move a lot. And that's your goal with a diversification strategy is to come up something that's the least expensive way to, to hedge your position. The challenge, of course, there is that it's a hedge that bleeds, right? Oh, yeah. Right. So, so let's talk about some of the strategies or, or ways of mitigating that bleed, if there are any. And the idea of timing insurance is an interesting concept. A lot of people do try to do that. But and the whole idea of insurance is you're supposed to always have it. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to kind of distinguish between the reasons why somebody would play with long VIX futures to begin with. Right. Then I think this goes also for the wall keys and the various option strategies. As you mentioned, it's, you can view it as insurance. I think you can mitigate that a bit by j- just looking at the overall mode of the market. If the market is quiet, if uh, there's no big shocks, uh, if, if you look at the term structure of, of you know, uh, SPX options or VIX futures, uh, if they're in heavy contango, that's a certainly an indication that the market is relatively quiet and absent the black swan terrorist attack or something exogenous that's, that's really huge. Uh, the risk of a, of a big downturn is pretty low. So I think one strategy that people do is, is they say, okay, uh, the probability of me needing insurance is relatively low at this point. So you can not hedge uh, for a while and then pick up the insurance when uh, the market starts uh, looking more uncertain, where historically your odds of a downturn are much higher uh, when you see, you know, the term structure flatten out or or start or go flat. That's definitely a yellow flag that uh, your risk is much higher. Is there anything to link margin levels or leverage in general to the amplitude of a potential VIX fight, right? And where, where, my, where I'm going with that is, I would think mechanically, if the vast majority of investors, traders are margins, right, and suddenly you have any kind of volatility that then sparks a, in quotes, global margin call, the likelihood of a spike in the VIX is obviously larger and the magnitude could be more significant because it's forced selling, as opposed to if you don't have as much leverage. Is there anything that suggests there's a link there? I see the margins thing come, they come out fairly frequently. And I haven't looked at the correlation. My my gut feel is that there's not a, a high correlation there. I think that correlations are better is what I said with the the term structure that is being a, a better indication of risk. I think the other thing we don't know is that, you know, people that are are using a lot of margin debt have leveraged up. I th- the hedge funds and those sorts of folks probably are doing some hedging on top of that. So even though there's a lot of leverage there, still if you uh, hedge that, then uh, the this from a margin standpoint, it makes a huge difference. If you've got long calls in that position, out of the money calls, not 
if you do have a down move, not only do you on the, on, if you have calls on the VIX side of things, not only does the VIX go up, but the implied vols go up. So you can construct hedges that, that, that really reduce your odds of a margin call, for example. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. Let's talk about other ways of trying to, using that term structure, structure a trade without necessarily using VIX futures, but would still give you at least some convexity. Synthetic sort of replication without the bleed. What have you seen on that? And I'll preface this by saying, there's a lot of interesting ones, but I'll preface it in, in my world, right, the I've done a lot of studies on this. There's a very strong correlation between VIX spikes and, for example, long duration treasuries outperforming intermediates. So TLT, uh-huh. outperforming IF, right? There's this kind of convex movement, which is a risk off type of dynamic. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. And that's, I'd argue, in quotes, relatively safer. Safe is a dangerous word in our industry, right? But it's relatively safer because you don't have as much of the bleed dynamics. But mm-hmm. what, what are ways that you can mimic VIX futures without playing that directly? Well, I think... The, the key word you mentioned was convexity. So you're looking for a nonlinear behavior. You, with the market, if equities go down 10%, something that goes up 10% isn't all that much health because the hedge, you've got to essentially have 50% in your, of your portfolio in the hedge. So you're looking for the highest hedge ratio, the highest uh, uh, response to that. And one of the best ways to do that is with VIX options or options on the long of all ETFs, UVXY and IX, UVX. And the reason I chuckle with your comment about bleed is that that's the magic combination is a, is a high complexity hedge that, that doesn't bleed a lot. And, and, you know, that's just in the harsh realities of life is that you're not going to get a, a good hedge without some bleed. So, so the key is how can you come up with a bleed that's tolerable in the sort of number that, that when I've done simulations and those sorts of things is that you're looking at 5% per year sort of bleeds to put, let's say, a UVIX call option strategy in place that has high leverage. I'm curious, when you do those types of simulations, so you're going back to inception of the VIX, you're not necessarily looking at standard deviation, right, prior to VIX inception? Typically, those simulations, when I'm simulating that, what I'm doing is I'm building a model. The key aspect is how does the, how do the options behave in that sort of shocky situations? You know what your theta losses are. So you, your, your cost, your hedge cost is pretty well known. The question is, all right, how many options can I buy with that money? And then how would they perform, let's say, if the VIX goes from today's 13 and a half up to 30. And so I use the black and chul model as the backbone for that in the simulations. And then I'll look at heuristics for how much has the implied volatility of those options, how much has the premium of those options historically jumped 
uh, when you get into a, a fear, you know, hot crash sort of scenario. Is there anything that suggests that the simulations would change based on different cycles? So, you know, going back to nineties, two thousands, where we are today, a lot of people say, well, listen, what if it's like the seventies, right? In terms of market dynamics, volatility, inflation comes down, it comes right back up. And maybe you're starting to see some shades of that with Europe right now. But would those, would you suspect the simulations you've done in the last three decades would be, would result in a similar sort of conclusion in a, a totally different environment, like a stagflationary environment, or is that irrelevant? Definitely the volatility surface, the combination of time and strike price, that has shifted a lot over the decades. And the use of options and derivatives has just climbed dramatically over that time period. So it is a moving target. And so strategies that back tested well in the 70s, I'm pretty confident they, they wouldn't work well now. I think one of the biggest dynamics is that there's a lot more uh, options selling now, that this is an institutional thing, a pension fund. So that's going to be depressing the prices of options. But that's a scenario more for uh, a quiet market. Uh, that that's something you do when you're trying to generate a little extra return from the investment. I don't think that activity is going to be impacting the big mall crashes. So there the dynamic is the speed of the decline. I think that's if I'm simulating, you know, I've looked at the option data for the COVID crash and the IV climbs were astonishing. whereas the last downturn, the IV, I don't know, maybe we got to the low 40s. I don't know how high the VIX got, but that it makes a dramatic difference. So I think that's one of the big uncertainties in these uh, simulations is the speed of the decline and in forecasting. How worried are you? That the, the plus side of a slow decline is it gives you more time to react. You're not in a, a situation where it's, you know, day-to-day crashing. You have more time to say, okay, the macro factors are looking bad and uh, we can lower our, our risk profile. Just to reset the room for the remaining 20 minutes for those that are listening on space, I'm doing this uh, via Zoom to Vance uh, Harwood. We tried to do this yesterday, but unfortunately wasn't working. So hopefully the quality is good enough here. If any of you do want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. I encourage each and every one of you to look up Vance here on X and make sure you follow him as well. And as always, this will be a podcast under Lead Lag Live on Apple, YouTube, and Spotify. Had the, does, the, does the evolving structure of the market change anything in terms of volatility dynamics on a go-forward basis versus those prior simulations? I'm thinking in terms of more retail participation because of zero commission type of trading or more and more volume towards zero DTE. Is there anything that suggests that is has changed the game because they're just new variables? As I mentioned, the... Short selling is driving down prices. So that's one of those things that, that reduces the attractiveness of the short selling that's also going to impact some of these big callers that are in place that you're just not getting much premium from the selling the call. So that reduces your ability to either how much return, you know, either capping the, the upside or uh, not as much downside protection. The Regarding the zero-day options, I've looked at this fairly closely. My opinion is that this is not the big deal that, that some people think it is. And the reason I feel that way is that if you look at 
the market maker situation. The, they're the ones that, that are, you know, making this market. And what's the exposure? How much risk are they taking? And what are the risks of t- contagion on that? And my sense is the flow is pretty balanced in the sense of they're not having to scramble to you know, handle a big, long or short position, which is pretty ideal from a market maker standpoint, that they're essentially allowing to servicing the flow and not having to wear a position, as they call it. The other aspect of that is people talk about the gamma. And I did some digging into this and, you know, I'm not a, a gamma guru, but the thing that, that people point at is that you have a lot of options that are going into expiration and the gamma, the change in the option price is the function of the price of the underlying. That rate of change goes very high, essentially infinite right at execution. If you're right at uh, the strike price, uh, a penny above or below makes a huge difference in the payoff. It go payoff from zero to some significant number. So the gamma of that particular strike, let's say SPY is at 470 and you've got 100,000 or 500,000 options all expiring at that point. That looks like a really big deal. And it is. But the other dynamic with that is when the whole series of options goes into expiration, the gamma on all of the other ones that are away from the strike goes to zero. Now, the question from this is back to the engineering thing is, okay, so you've got a bunch of options going to zero and one going to infinity. What's the average of that? And the arithmetic average is going to be biased by that one option that has sky high gamma. So I think the averages that people point out, you know, that's mathematically correct, but it's deceiving because you're seeing the effect of a, a handful of options rather than the whole series. Let's talk about any kind of observable patterns that you see when it comes to trading volatility or trading VIX futures in general. Is there any sort of consistency around major earnings for some major companies that might have implications on the broader market or certain key events that are upcoming Fed meetings mm-hmm. that, that you, you find are, are repeatable and can be taken advantage of by traders in, in short bursts? So two things to mind. One, not so much to your question, but that is the pattern with uh, the vol environment is that 80% of the time you're... You know, 80 to 85% of the time you're in contango uh, short positions or are making money. And so from an overall dynamic, that's attractive. The downside to that is that 20% of the time you're in a vol spike or a very uh, uncertain environment. So that's the downside of, of that particular scenario. Circling back to your question about the, I think it's a very interesting area because that's one of the things that disrupts the term structure as you look at the options is if you have known unknowns uh, with company earnings or Fed announcements or elections, then you see distortions in that term structure. So one of the things you can do is you can make bets as to, you know, is the implied volatility high enough that you're going to make a profit regardless of the way. The other is you. Ha- there are uh, the market makers to avoid arbitrage and it's 
uh, situations, there's predictable changes in the implied volatility. So, for example, if Apple has an earnings a report coming up, what, what you'll see is that the really the options that are expiring close to that event, the implied volatility, the premium associated with that option goes sky high. But that also impacts the options that, that expire before and the options that expire well after with the butterflies or various calendar spreads. If those don't get pulled too, then there's arbitrage possibilities. So whenever you know, have data, say, okay, I don't know what direction this is going to go, but I know this is going to have an impact on the term structure. That's an opportunity to put a play and trade and play. One of the things you that's often said in the media is the VIX is the fear gauge. And I would never liked that way of characterizing it. I've always characterized it myself more as the doubt gauge. You know, it's multiple participants basically saying, mm-hmm. I think the price should be here. I think the price should be there. I don't know if you've ever done any work on this, but, uh, you know, uh, since you mentioned the word event, I- I'm very loud on the idea that I myself believe there is a credit event out there because of the lagged effects of the fastest rate hike cycle in history against ZERP that took place for over a decade or around a decade, rather. The There is a strong link between VIX spikes and credit spreads widening, mm-hmm. right? difference between junk and, and AAA which seems to suggest that the bond market interprets volatility in equities as increased default risk fundamentally for higher levered debt issuers. Any thoughts on that dynamic? Because I think one of the reasons you can argue that we haven't really had a severe VIX spike despite this rate hike cycle is spreads aren't just continuously getting tighter and tighter, much to the chagrin of me, because I'd like to see some volatility and risk there. Yeah, one of the things is that it's tough to figure out the correlations and the interest, the uncertainty factor is how much of what the market is doing. The equity marketing is due to economic uncertainty. And probably the, uh, the, I've mentioned this before, just the unknown effects of it. I think one of the aspects of the COVID crash was there, were, there was just a ton of uncertainty in terms of how much is this going to spread and uh, coupled with a very big impacts on uh, retail and restaurants and those sorts of things. The you know, predictive power of, of the VIX, I think, is quite low. Uh, I think the best estimate of tomorrow's volatility is to today's volatility. And I think there's a fundamental misconception that, that I think the CBOE promotes, and that's when they talk about the volatility that the VIX gauge is a measure of expected volatility. And while I think that's literally true, what they don't tell you and probably don't really get themselves is that's oftentimes formulaic. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. The is kind of men, mind bending, but volatility. If if you do a simulation, that's just using, just simulating straight randomness, no direction. 
and you look at the volatility over a 30-day period, the realized volatility goes up with the square root of time, which is, you know, so over a, so that, that's a mind-bending concept. But that's mathematical. That's just the nature of volatility. So what the VIX most of the time is reflecting that mathematical uh, expansion of volatility. It's not predicting that 30 days from now, we're going to have 30% more volatility than we have now. It's just saying that given the math, that's what it's likely to look at. And and I think that's, that confuses uh, a lot of people because they're saying, well, it's saying expected volatility. Why is it not predicted? You know, just that. So I had put out a piece that won the Founders Award from NAME, the National Association. Mm-hmm. Of mm-hmm. That basically argued that the VIX is mean reverting, right? And actually, the best thing to do if you're going to be an equity investor is to when the VIX is at a, an elevated level around 32, 33, the best thing to do is to go into high beta, primarily mm-hmm. technology, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And when the VIX is actually low, you actually want to be in defensive sectors, utility, staple, and healthcare. And it, it goes to that mean averting nature of it, right? You want to be defensive before the VIX spike and then offensive after it, which is, mm-hmm. I think, counter to the way a lot of people think if right. you're in a low VIX environment, you want to go aggressive. It's actually the opposite over time from the study that I put out. But it does become interesting if you view it as, Almost like the definition of profanity, right? You know when you hear it. You know when you know when vol is likely to mean revert, but you only know after it starts to move in a certain way. The tough part of that is when vol is low, because you know there there is a vol spike in the future. That's a given, uh, but the timing is very uncertain. So I don't view a low vix as predictive at all. I think it's just expressing the market is is in this mode. It's it's in this quieter mode and. People aren't paying as much for put options and those sorts of things. So it's one of those things that's going to be eventually right, but you uh, could miss out on a, on a lot of beta uh, in the interim. Maybe for the last few minutes here, Vance, and again, everybody that's here, I, I'm streaming this via Zoom to the space, but please make sure you follow Vance Harwood on X. If you love volatility, I got to assume you love Bitcoin. So let's transition a little bit to, to Bitcoin, given all the hype around the Bitcoin spot ETFs. I joked last night that I can't wait to see a Bitcoin ETF of all the Bitcoin spot ETFs and all the hype that will come around that. But, you know, speaking about volatility and Bitcoin, any thoughts? I'm just curious. Any thoughts on that dynamic in terms of what that might imply for actual volatility of the vehicles impacting the underlying? I think there is this belief out there that once these ETFs are alive, it's going to bring down the volatility of spot Bitcoin because of the vehicles themselves. I fundamentally disagree with that. And one data point for that is we have a, with BITO and there are various other ETFs that are on Bitcoin futures. And unlike VIX futures, which have huge continuum and huge term structures and huge carry costs, that's not the case with, with the Bitcoin futures. And the reason being is that it's straightforward to to hold Bitcoin. So the physical, in the case of Bitcoin, is something kind of ironically, but it's because it's just digital. But it is something you can warehouse. You can buy Bitcoin and put them in a warehouse, whereas you can't do that with volatility. So circling back, BITO and and those equivalents, which I think currently have a billion and a half in assets, are our reasonable proxy to Bitcoin. Now, you know, there is some carry costs. I looked and it's been running like 4% a year, but compared to the overall volatility of Bitcoin, that's pretty small. So 
So when people are saying there's all this institutionality on the on the sidelines waiting to pounce in, I don't see that as a dynamic because if they really wanted to, they they could have uh, already done it. Yeah, I, tell you, I, I have I have my own thoughts on this just in terms of the narrative and the hype. I, I also think in general, if the argument is that the Bitcoin spot ETFs will result in a huge allocation from wealth managers, financial advisors, I keep going back to the demographics don't favor that, right? Baby mm-hmm. boomers hold most of the wealth. The, S, the SMEs, the client of these SMEs tend to be older anyway. They're probably more into gold, if anything, than Bitcoin. So it's, and advisors, as much as they claim to be in control of those client assets, because that's what they're hired to do, they're mm-hmm. going to do what clients say. So I'm a bit skeptical myself, but obviously the hype is real. The thing is, you and I both know when hype is real, mm-hmm. it's be disappointing. Right. And I wouldn't be shocked to see Bitcoin do a, a, a big run up because there's just uh, so much interest associated with it. But just looking over my own path with Bitcoin, my my son pointed it out a long time ago. And I, I was a person wanted to buy one of my spreadsheets years ago with Bitcoin versus versus cash. And I said, okay, you know, I game. I think it was a $50 spreadsheet and I think it was a tenth of a Bitcoin. So, you know, it's been a, a great purchase. But I, I sell Bitcoin four different ways by, you know, you know the code. I bought it via Coinbase and it's just in my account. I bought it versus Grayscale and the horrible closed-end mutual fund structure with this unknown premium. And then I held it currently holding it at BNTO. So to say that adding the fifth way of holding it is going to be this game changer is, you know, I think is kind of funny. Wall Street doing what Wall Street does. (laughs) Vance, as we wrap up here, for those that want to have a better understanding of volatility, the VIX index, and how to think about it for their own portfolios. What are some of the resources that you'd suggest or recommend that people look towards? Well, of course, there's my blog, Six Figure Investing. That's one way to do it. I think a simple Google search or ChatGPT actually does a, a good job of summarizing thing. And I've really enjoyed using that tool because it's for mainstream po- topics. I think it does a great job of summarizing the, I think just Learning about options in general is is a good exercise because that's what this is all built on, is that the premium of options is the basis of all this. So the more that you can get a feel for how options uh, behave, and that's, you know, and even a skin in the game sort of thing is that options, buy options that are close to expiration. If you go long in a position like that, you're you're, you can do it for 50 bucks and then you can watch uh, the premium of that, oh, let's say, over the span of a few days. And I think a little thin in the game in that point goes a long ways towards getting the feel of, you know, this, you know, people, it's mysterious enough people want to ascribe it to manipulation. But if you understand the forces that are at play and also some of the nonlinearities, I think one, one of the things people really don't understand how sticky volatility is. And I and that's one of the reasons I think the the absolute value of VIX is problematic because it doesn't tell you all that much. It doesn't it's it really depends the value of the VIX is if the market has been through huge turmoil but but now is settling down, you might be at 30, whereas a market almost with that same level of calmness might be at 15. So the absolute value of the VIX isn't all that helpful. 
It's more reflecting the history of what's happened recently, oftentimes. This is a uh, great conversation. Everybody here that's listening on the, on the space, again, make sure you look up Vance Harwood on X. Follow him. Check out his website. Vance, I appreciate your knowledge. I personally enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Thanks a lot. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.